my name is Ari Redboard, uh, Head of Legal and Government Affairs at TRM Labs. Welcome to TRM Talks. TRM Talks is brought to you by TRM Labs, the leading provider of blockchain intelligence and anti-money laundering software. Over the last few weeks, UK financial regulators have been busy on crypto policy from a final response to consultation with an update on how the financial regulator has decided to approach the cryptocurrency travel rule and to managing the risk of stablecoin and other projects. And this is just the beginning. Today, TRM Talks is joined by James Gillespie, Policy Advisor, Sanctions and Illicit Finance at HM Treasury, and Ian Taylor, Executive Director of Crypto UK and KPMG UK, to discuss Treasury's final rule on the travel rule, unhosted wallets, and how the UK is working to become a global crypto hub. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for joining today. Uh, it's interesting, you know. A, a, even as we were as we were kicking off today, we we were in a uh, conversation um, on sort of the, the the state of politics in in the, in the series of a number of, of resignations um, in, in the cabinet in, in in the UK over the last day or so. Um, we're we're going to do sort of what we normally do at, at TRM, but just sort of given um, you know uh, current events. Um, and Ian, you mentioned sort of just a few minutes ago that you're being asked a lot about sort of the political environment and really how does it impact all the work that's happening, um, you know, around crypto regulation. Do you want to kick kick us off uh, sort of with that question? And, and James, maybe you can sort of chime in as well. Yeah, thanks, Ari, and a pleasure to be here again on TRM Labs. Um, look forward to the discussion. Yeah, so it, it would be remiss of me not to mention the current political situation in the UK. I'm sure all your viewers are aware of it. It's been a pretty traumatic um, rollercoaster the last 48 hours. And so I'm being asked by lots of the community, both members of Crypto UK and the journalist community, you know, what, it is, what does this mean for crypto policy in the UK? Because if, we've, if we roll the clock back to the beginning of April, I'm actually Treasury came out and um, said, we want to be the crypto hub. Um, and a whole host of initiatives um, were put down at that announcement, um, which has generally been um, perceived by the global community as very positive. And that's really good for UK PLC that folks want to come to the UK and innovate and build new products and services in the crypto and blockchain ecosystem. So what my personal view is government is government. You know, you can cut off one head, but it's always going to still be there. And, and James can speak to as a civil servant or public servant, as you say, in the US, he's still doing his job. And so are his thousands of colleagues in, in Treasury. Um, what, what, what I would say is the hard work that the community's done educating and advocating for the industry with the Chancellor and the junior minister, John Glenn, over the last two years um, has really helped the UK set out its stall. Um, now there is a little bit of a question mark around who the new um, ministers will be in these positions and what their views and experience um, and knowledge will be for um, new policy, uh, which is needed um, for sure. I think everyone in the industry, both private and public sector, realise this, um, whether it be around consumer harms, additional fin crime, which we'll talk, talk about later. But yeah, just really... Um, hopeful that we can still engage with government as we do and educate and really allow the UK to achieve its goal of being a crypto hub. Th th thank you so much for that. Uh, James, you are, you are uh, as, as you mentioned, a civil servant sort of, um, and, and I imagine, you know, having spent years a a as a career official within the US government, you just keep on keeping on, uh, was, was my experience. You know, I went through numbers of political appointees in various positions and, um, the really the heads down work is done by the career um, civil servants. Is, is, is that sort of the the moral of the story here as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the situation at the moment is that we still um, have a government, although the prime minister has um, set a timetable for his departure and the election of a new leader of, of the Conservative Party. But the government is still um, the government and um, the statutory instrument, the bit of secondary legislation that implements the travel rule, we laid before Parliament recently, and it is still before Parliament. So, um, from our point of view, it's um, the travel rule is is very much uh, still government policy, and moreover, as you will be aware, the travel rule is an international standard. Is something is not the sort of policy that we would be um, ripping up and revisiting when a new minister came into. Uh, 
post it, it it's one where um obviously there is international expectation that we implement it um so yeah i just want to reassure anyone uh, who may be wondering um this doesn't mean that we're um going to be reconsidering uh things uh the government is still um, in office, and uh, as Ari said, uh, we're keeping our heads down and um, progressing as best we can. No, thank you, thank you so much for that. And I, uh, I knew this was going to be a very timely discussion. I did not know that we would be uh, reacting to events uh, on, on the ground in real time. So yeah, no, thank you for that to sort of kick it, kick it off that way. James, look, I, I, you, you, you really are sort of at the at the epicenter of, of much of sort of the regulatory policy today in, in the UK. Would you talk a little bit about your journey? Uh, to crypto? How'd you get involved in this space? Where the interests come from? And sort of maybe a little bit about the work that you're doing. Sure. So um, I've been in my current role now for um, around two years. And uh, I originally joined, um, was more of a general emerging risks post within the sanctions illicit finance team. And um, just because of how things uh, were at that point in time, the travel rules really be part of that. And also crypto more broadly with you know, that really widening uptake um, of crypto as as an asset class, and um, so I came into it, you know, previously having worked in the more mainstream area of financial services policy on on some EU exit issues. So I wasn't a complete stranger to uh, financial regulation, um, but crypto was quite new to me. But it's been a great couple of years. I've learnt uh, a lot about crypto, and uh, I've also become um, an advocate for crypto, uh, at least with my friends and family, um, uh, because yeah, I do I do very much think that it's got uh, like a really central place in in the future for um, financial services and uh, technology, um, and so it's really exciting to be here near the beginning of that regulatory journey um, to try to, to make sure we're doing it in the right way, which uh, supports both industry and make sure that uh, we've also a safe and stable system as well. Terrific. Yeah, no, thanks so much for that. Um, Ian, you, you uh, really are a central figure in sort of advocating for, for the crypto industry within the UK and have been for some time. Uh, sort of how do we get here? I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about your journey to this space and, uh, you know, and ha how you ended up really as one of the leading voices uh, for the crypto industry in the UK? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I have a background in banking and was naturally interested in um, Bitcoin, for example, as a, you know, a new investment asset class a few years ago. And through my involvement with the wider um, five to 10 years, got involved in, in policy um, working first for um, Global Teachers Finance, helping government understand um, what this new technology was about, um, and then took over running Crypto UK, the UK's trade association at the beginning of 2020. So I've been really involved in the community, not just here domestically in the UK, but also across the globe, helping global standard setters such as Financial Action Task Force, OECD, Bank of National Sentiments, but also competent authorities sort of navigate the way through the issues that have been faced for the industry, but also help um, policymakers and the regulators understand the benefits um, that the technology brings to many aspects of society. Ian, thank you so much. And I think one thing that's really kind of extraordinary about the, the panel today is that you uniquely, I think, understand the importance of working with regulators and with the public sector. And James, I think that, you know, you uh, have shown throughout your your time that that the importance of reaching out to the private sector and this is i think a really should be a really terrific conversation around the particularly with that as as a theme here um J james i think sort of what what really precipitated this conversation was um the response about two weeks ago now to consultation on a, a bunch of different sort of aml cft related issues but the one that really obviously jumped out to the crypto space is on really sort of treasury's final view on the travel rule. Uh, would you talk a little bit and, and you know, maybe high level at first and then dig in, in a little bit to sort of what, what it says, uh, what the, the final response says and sort of what it, what it means and maybe even a little, how, how did you get there? Sure, so um, I won't go into uh, too much detail as I assume most people on the call have a reasonable amount of knowledge about the travel rule, but I will give a brief sort of overview of how we've Perfect. gone about trying to implement and then also focus on a couple of the areas where we, have changed our proposals in response to feedback. Um, so overall, 
uh, our approach has been um, to say, as a starting point, we've got the funds transfer regulation, which it applies to wire transfers. Let's sort of use that as a starting point and adjust as necessary to suit to the crypto infrastructure and the crypto ecosystem. Um, so overall, we've got an approach of um, where a transfer is uh, over a thousand euros, um, we'll be requiring the same beneficiary and originator information as for a normal wire transfer. Similarly, there is a de minimis threshold below which, um, below a thousand euros where more limited information needs to be sent. Um, and there's also uh, an exemption for where each crypto asset firm, crypto asset service provider is within the UK, then again, more limited information needs to be sent um, on the basis that if a request is made to provide it, then obviously it would still be provided within um, uh, a short period of time. So um, those uh, are you know, the standard travel rule um, things and those stick very close to what we've done with wire transfers. And we think it's also important that um, not just from a perspective of consistency, but also because we don't really want to have a situation where different uh, industries, uh, where there's an uneven playing field without a good reason. Um, so we want to make sure that the kind of the regulatory treatment of both normal financial uh, services and fintech and crypto uh, is is the same unless there is good reason to depart from the treatment. So um, that brings me on, I think, to some of the areas where we've done things a bit differently because it's uh, crypto. And so there are a few concepts um, which I know uh, some people are curious about and which um, look a bit different or don't apply in the context of normal transfers. So the first of these is this idea of an intermediary crypto asset service provider. So uh, the financial action task force standards, um, these mention um, intermediaries in the context originally of, of wire transfers, in which case you're talking about correspondent banking, but they also mention intermediaries in the context of crypto assets. So for crypto assets, um, obviously there isn't a correspondent banking system. So the question we got um, from industry and other stakeholders was, what do we really mean by intermediaries? And the answer to this and the reason why we've included intermediaries, um, it's not just because the FAT have, have asked us to, it's also because we think that the market's quite possibly going to develop in a way where um, subcontracting certain parts of crypto asset transfers um, is going to become more common. And, and so one um, way might be you've got a company that wants to uh, break into the crypto space. It's already an established financial services firm, but doesn't wish to do so um, by building everything itself from scratch. So it uh, enters into a contract with a crypto firm to provide some of those transfer services for it. Or even a situation where an established crypto exchange, there might be specific services of, of theirs that they contract to another exchange because um, maybe they don't have enough volume on, of that particular asset or, or, or whatever. So what we wanted to do is really make sure that where there's a relationship of subcontracting or subcustody, that the obligations fall on everyone in that chain. It's not a situation where suddenly um, the information gets stuck because the intermediary isn't under a legal obligation to send it on or because the intermediary is um, feels as though it can't send it on because it hasn't collected that data in line with legal and regulatory requirements. And depending on what your data protection laws like in your local jurisdiction, that could potentially be be an issue. So um, that's what we were trying to do with intermediaries. Um, and we've been clear that we want to define intermediaries as being some someone who is an intermediate uh, part of that chain, i.e. is not directly contracted by either the originator or the beneficiary of a transfer, um, but has a relationship with um, one of the crypto asset service providers on either side. And the second thing is we want to be quite clear that this is not dealing with software uh, providers um, and people who aren't performing crypto asset service provider functions. So it's only where a, an intermediary already fulfills the definition of a crypto asset service provider, i.e. by way of business, they are facilitating the exchange or transfer of crypto assets. It's only in those situations where an intermediary would fall in scope. 
Um, I hope that that kind of allays some of the, the queries and concerns that we had during the consultation process, whereby people were concerned that it might be a bit um, over-inclusive if we talked about intermediaries. Um, the second area uh, where I, I think there's a pretty big difference from what we've got currently with the wire transfer rule is around unhosted or self-hosted wallets. So obviously private individuals uh, can't uh, and don't have access to the SWIFT banking system or, or similar. You have to go via an institution which is part of that system. And the benefit, benefit to that, obviously, from a uh, anti-money laundering perspective, at least, is that there is a gatekeeper um, on either side and all this information is verified to be shared. However, with unhosted wallets, which um, we do absolutely believe those are an important part of the ecosystem and they uh, are something that we don't want to um, sort of squash or by default end up um, outlawing. Um, with unhosted wallets, you, you need a different way of, of sort of dealing with those because there isn't that um, verification and data collection process that there is for um, uh, a crypto asset service provider. Um, and the question for us was, well, how do we want to approach this? Because unhosted wallets obviously don't pause, uh, pose no risk. Um, we know because we've seen cases of, of money laundering, terrorist financing and so on, which have used unhosted wallets. And we've seen cases where law enforcement has have seized cold wallets, you know, physical devices being kept by criminals. So clearly unhosted wallets can pose a threat. At the same time, um, we're conscious that there isn't, there are lots of legitimate reasons why someone would have an unhosted wallet. I personally use an unhosted wallet. So um, we're not at all of the view that, um, we should be sort of cracking down on them. Um, and so with that in mind, what we've decided to do is have a system where the information um, on a transfer needs to be collected on a risk-sensitive basis. So what we mean by that is when the crypto asset service provider receives a transfer from an unhosted wallet or is asked by its customer to make a transfer to an unhosted wallet, it may have to get the information on the beneficiary originator from its own customer. Um, but it will only be required to do that on a risk sensitive basis where the, the transaction has for whatever reason, whether it's geographical or um, something else has been identified as being of higher risk. And um, that's partly because we don't want to have unnecessary data collection, because that can also be a financial crime risk if you've got a big pool of data sitting somewhere that can get hacked. Um, but also because, you know, it's um, uh, not verified information. It can still be useful, but um, we felt that it's it's not proportionate to collect that in each and every case. Um, the other couple of areas which we changed in response to consultation feedback. So um, one was uh, around the implementation period. So there's going to be a 12-month implementation period, meaning that the travel rule comes into force September 2023, um, obviously pending Parliament's approval. I don't want to jump the gun and assume that RMPs are going to agree, but um, the other thing is that um, uh, we're also going to, um, when it comes to sort of uh, some of the, the concerns which are expressed around, you know, what, what time do you calculate the value of a transfer and so on. Um, we're going to hopefully try to, and Ian might be able to speak to this a bit more, try to fill some of that out in in guidance because we're conscious of not wanting to put so much detail in law that it becomes inflexible. But we also know that um, the sector and customers want to know, you know, want to have as much certainty as, as they can about what their obligations are and, and what to do. So um, aware that I've uh, gone into a bit of a monologue, so I'll stop there. No, and, actually, actually yeah. that, that's exactly what I was hoping for here, because I think this is the one place we want to be as granular as possible and really, really appreciate that perspective. Um, you know, look, when I read it, I, I it, it struck me. And, and before I get to Ian, I just kind of wanted to ask you this, because I think this is where, where he also likely played a role. It struck me as really the sort of um, the product of timely consultation, um, but then also sort of really, really thought thoughtfulness from regulators on sort of getting to the right place. Would you just like just to kind of briefly describe the way you engaged with 
industry in that process. And then Ian, honestly, like I would just like to hear the way that industry, uh, you know, engaged with government here um, as well to kind of just get a feel for this. And I'll, I'll just say like, you know, people ask all the time, hey, how do I, you, you talk about wanting to public private partnerships or engagement. How do we do that? What, what does it look like in practice in, in a process like this? So it was interesting from the treasury point of view because um, we started without having some of the established relationships that we normally have with um, the big banks and, and so on and entities which have been regulated for, for a long time. Obviously, crypto firms only came into scope of the money laundering regulations in 2020. So it was um, a new process for us. But what we did was um, we were aware that Ian um, and Crypto UK uh, had entered the scene as, as the primary industry group um and so we wanted to proactively talk to them and we also wanted to make sure that we were in addition to just sending out the consultation document which um can be a bit sort of um technical and and intimidating we wanted to make sure there were opportunities to have stakeholder roundtables we wanted to make sure that we gave we sort of we talked to ian and said you know, can we set up some of these with his members? And obviously we also talked to companies like TRM Labs and others in, in the crypto uh, compliance space, because, um, you know, when we were coming into this as quite a new set of relationships, we wanted to make sure we were proactive, that we weren't just allowing those who are most um, used to or confident with dealing with government um, to only get their voices heard. We wanted to make sure that that was as a broader, a set of um, uh, stakeholders as possible were going to respond and that we were going to be able to have a discussion with. That, that, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. Uh, Ian, from your perspective, um, I'd say the consultation process, we'd love to kind of hear a little bit about that. Was it sort of your just charming personality that that allows you to sort of engage in this way or, uh, <laughs> uh, or subject matter expertise or, or both? Uh, but uh, no, and then also sort of what, what is the take or what is your take? What is the industry take on sort of ultimately um, what, what we see here in terms of final form, uh, whether it's unhosted wallets or sort of overall overall travel rule? Yeah, it's certainly not anything to do with my personality. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would first touch on the collaboration and um, public sector seeking the views of um, the subject matter experts, i.e. the private sector's folks, you know, live in this every single day um, has been excellent, I must say, not just from uh, James's department in Treasury, but across the whole of government. Um, we've seen a real improvement from all of government departments in the last year to really seek input um, across, the, across the board, not just from Crypto UK's members, but from other um, in individual institutions i'm constantly meeting market participants and they're saying oh yeah we met with folks at treasury the other day they're great yeah they, we're talking about stable coins we're talking about fin crime policy we're talking about consumer harm policy which is great so that's um a pat on, pat on the back to the folks um in government which has been really widely appreciated by the industry and yeah just to set the scene crypto participants that we work with 99% of those that build new innovative um, products and solutions uh, want, want to be regulated, want to be compliant and want to engage in a discussion in what is a largely, largely unregulated industry. So it's vital that we, you know, achieve the balance and proportion of regulation that I know James and his colleagues in Treasury are seeking to achieve. So all that backslapping done, um, let me move to the technical details <laughs> in regards to the, the, the key issues that James touched on. So firstly, um, transferring of funds to uh, self-hosted wallets, non-custodial wallets. I thought that was fantastic when, when we saw that um, uh, released from government, which is um, out of um, uh, not necessarily the same approach taken by other jurisdictions. Um, I mentioned the continent, um, Singapore and Switzerland, others that are seeking to capture data sending to self-hosted wallets, um, irrespective of, say, the values. That is uh, not really proportionate in our view as an industry. Look, we're at the beginning of, of developing products and services. And I take James's point that a self-hosted wallet is within the overall ecosystem, but is you know not a central entity. And this is what the FATF, Financial Action Task Force, struggle with, you know, identifying central market participants that we've been used to regulating, such as financial industry, 
players, um, but when it's just a piece of code that allows you to store um, your own assets, digital assets, then we have to be very careful. So this is a very good proportionate risk-based approach by the UK government. I think broadly the community welcomes um, and we'll stay engaged with the discussion as further guidance comes out. And then regarding some of the other issues, um, we have been invited by government to join a whole host of um, uh, initiatives that the UK has working with industry, um, joint money law and steering committee, other trade associations to really help um, develop additional guidance that provides that clarity that perhaps is, is not there at this first pass. Um, which, as James said, I agree with. Um, when you write policy, you want it to be, um, you know, not too broad, but you don't want it to be too detailed in what is a very dynamic industry because you have to be, you know, proactive in terms of future-proofing certain issues, but not too um, uh, prescriptive in, in in who's included and and what activities included. So overall, um, not perfect, but a damn good, good, good first effort. That, that that's that's fantastic and really helpful. I think one one thing you both spoke to, which is interesting and, and is and is really true of any sort of policy making, is that there's the the legal framework, but then really it's up to regulators to implement through rulemaking. And it sounds like obviously sort of some of this will ultimately come down to sort of the way way, way that process um, take takes place. James, before I move on to other issues, because we could spend the entire um, you know hour on on uh, travel rule and unhosted wallets, uh, there was a great question in the chat around sort of the risk-based approach piece, right? Um, you know, we understand that, you know, in, in most cases, or at least there's no uh, obligation uh, around unhosted wallets. However, uh, the mandate is to take a risk-based approach, essentially, um, you know, in, in those cases. What, could you give sort of an example of what that looks like or what the expectation is there? Sure. So um, I'll try to be as helpful as I can, but at the same time, this might come across as like one of those answers that you sometimes got from your teacher where um, they're trying to say, you know, think it through and work it through yourself, which is not always the answer you want to have. But uh, <laughs> that, um, that's always part. whenever a regulator talks about a risk based approach, that's always the answer that you get. So, so yeah. no worries there. And, and so, so you're think, working. Yeah. So and this kind of ties in with the not being too prescriptive um, side of things is that we think um, it would be good to um, have each uh, and, and it's actually a regulatory requirement that each firm thinks through and develops its own risk-based policies, controls and procedures reflecting um, what they know from, you know, the national risk assessment of money laundering and terrorist financing and, and the risk assessment of proliferation financing um, and also about their specific products, um, potentially looking also at the jurisdiction in which um, the, the customer is or, or which uh, they tend to be making transfers to. So like, all of these factors, and, and there isn't kind of a, a an exhaustive list of which you can tick off from. It's really about sort of each firm understanding uh, in the context of its own business what the risk factors are. And, and obviously, you know, if you're operating, if you're based in the UK, those policies, procedures and, and controls will have been looked at by the FCA, um, our, our local supervisor, because they um they'll want to um as part of the process of registering a firm be sure that the firm is fit and proper um so with using that as a starting point how might this sort of how might you apply this in the context of an unhosted wallet transfer so for example if you were to be receiving a transfer in from an unhosted wallet um you know maybe you don't know its jurisdiction um but you might know for example that your customer um, is maybe based in a higher risk jurisdiction or maybe has frequently makes transfers to, um, let's say, you know, a crypto firm, which is in a jurisdiction with maybe slightly laxer regulations, um, not talking about a situation where you think that the customer has been transferring money to or, um, crypto to known uh, illicit addresses, um, but you know, if if it's if there are just these sort of indicators of higher risk that they're, you know, it might be entirely above board and the person hasn't been shown to have done anything wrong, but there are these things that you know you you would think raise the risk relative to your average transfer. In that situation, you'd then go to your customer and say, okay, before we can um, go any further, 
can you tell us who has sent this to you, provide this information, and we'll record it. If um, the your customer provides an inadequate answer or doesn't respond to that, then there'll be an expectation that um, you don't make that crypto asset available to um, your customer. Um, and the idea behind that, you know, elsewhere in the regulations, the travel rule, we talk about having to decide whether to allow a transfer or quarantine it or or reverse it if you don't have the required information and that's on a risk sensitive basis with unhosted wallet transfers it's all high risk because that's why you're collecting the information um in that situation the expectation would be if the if the information is not provided then you wouldn't make it available to your your customer um i think the firm would then have a choice do you reverse the transfer or um or do you quarantine it and i think that again goes back to the risk-based approach uh and um so that's a, a slightly long-winded uh no, that, that, answer, that, but... no i think that's that's actually more detailed than than you hear all, all the time I, I will say look i mean um you know at, at trm we are an answer to some of those questions right we are anti-money laundering for crypto and part of that sort of risk-based approach that compliance stack and i can tell you that talking to um, you know, our clients every day, there's every, every business, crypto business in the space takes a slightly different risk-based approach and sort of how to, how to engage with different types of risk. Um, as, as a plug, we did, we did a TRM talks about a week or so ago, uh, with compliance professionals at exchanges who delved into, I think it was hot topics in crypto compliance that delved into what a risk-based approach looks like for their businesses. So definitely sort of that, that would be one to also, um, also consider. Um, James, uh, I'm going to stick with you for a moment as we sort of move on a little bit. Uh, there's been a lot in the stablecoin space over the last you know, few months. Uh, some of it, uh, in my uh, view, has been building really for some time, uh, really almost going back to 2019 when, when Libra uh, launched Facebook's sort of now defunct uh, stablecoin project. But there's some has also been in direct reaction to uh, the sort of Terra USD collapse. Uh, would you sort of talk maybe broadly, and then we can dig in a little bit to uh, Treasury's um, work in the stablecoin space, whether it's the consultation, whether sort of, well, a number of different consultations, one on stablecoins, one also on sort of managing risk um, in, in the stablecoin space. And uh, Ian would love to sort of get your industry perspective on that um, in a moment. Sure. So um, I can't speak to this fully because um, I deal with the illicit finance side of um, crypto. There's a separate team that deals with um, the sort of the, the financial, the broader financial regulation and financial stability questions. And um, it's not my place to, uh, you know, go off piece and, and talk about their policy area. But what I can say in terms of the illicit finance side of things, um, is so stable coins um, are interesting as are sort of I, I think any coin which is backed by or linked to another sort of reference asset, which is that they may um, already fall within the scope of AML and the other regulations, depending on whether it it fulfills the definition of a security or not. Um, there's obviously no uh, single answer to that at all because um, it, it really just depends on um, whether on the specifics of the individual coin. But for um, uh, from an AML perspective, potentially you could be looking at uh, something within scope of the travel rule, um, or it might be something that's within the scope of the funds transfer rule because the coin in question um, uh, fulfills the definition of of e money, for example. Um, and then that if something fills definition of e-money or or if it if it's caught by another bucket of the financial regulatory system, then the obligations that apply might be slightly different. Um, so that's what, yeah, one obviously very important thing is to identify clearly where this specific product falls because you know even small differences can make quite a big regulatory difference. Um, but I'm afraid, yeah, I can't speak to the other. No, that, 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 that's really helpful. And I think, we, I mean, look, a lot of the illicit finance risks are the same um, in the stablecoin category as in any other sort of, uh, you know, asset in, in, in the space. Ian, if you want to sort of jump in here, 
um, on stable coins. Um, you could probably get a little more far afield uh, than James is able to in his in his role. Um, what what is sort of the framework today? And it, it, honestly, it's mostly in consultation form. But what is the sort of the framework, or, or how do you see the framework developing for for stable coins in the UK? And, and sort of what what developments have we seen over the last few months? Yeah, we've heard a lot from the government guards uh, regulating stablecoin issuers. Um, and just to sort of set the scene, um, we'll see policy um, come through soon or new regulations um, basically treating stablecoin issuers as e-money institutions. And the US doesn't have um, electronic money. UK and Europe have this, if you like, intermediary piece of regulation that allows competition in the financial services sector, which was really progressive in my personal view from payments regulations coming out of Brussels um, and then being transposed into UK law along with a host of other sort of progressive um, digital bank policy. Another example would be open banking in the UK allowing um, competition to thrive and so that's why the UK has a great reputation as a fintech capital for innovating financial services and so back to stable coins we responded to the consultation last year naturally and the group that we formed to respond to the consultation on how to regulate stable coins and the main question was should we regulate stable coins like e-money um, the answer was generally yes again everything's not perfect but it the community generally agree this is the right approach. Stablecoin issuers should not be treated like banks. That's too much of a regulatory hurdle for stablecoin issuers to get over and could perhaps stifle innovation as you know, many other jurisdictions are looking at regulating stablecoins. And this, yes, as you mentioned, Facebook's Libra and then Diem, which is now dead, sort of put this into the um, focus of um, governments and policymakers, rightfully so, because it's their job to protect for against financial stability and what the e-money regime does is focuses on consumer harms which is really important because we wouldn't want systemic stablecoin issuers to fall over and then everybody lose you know a lot of money where what we also see is the uk government provide um there's a consultation live in terms of a backstop for if um and issuer of a stable coin becomes insolvent so there is protection against um, folks losing um their assets um and will also you know well, at well, the moment, Ian, Ian, let me yeah. let me just stop you there because actually that's mm -hmm. that's a really good one it, it just sort of mm -hmm. point right like people ask sort of well has regulation yet come from sort of what we saw with terra and some of these other stable coin projects today and it mm -hmm. seems like actually that was an example of regulators moving almost in real time to address an issue that was occurring in the space. Um, and yeah. I, I point to that as the, as really the, one of a very few examples, I think most other sort of guidance or, or, or consultation was in the works. This struck me as something that may not have been, and may have something moved very quickly. Um, and I think to me, that's, it's, it's actually extraordinary having been a regulator and, and, and worked mm -hmm. at, at us treasury to see uh, regulators move that quickly on that. I mean, is that what, what, any sort of thoughts there? Well, that's a very good point. And you know, this isn't James's department and we can only speculate here. However, I personally did um, think the timing was interesting as this um, consultation was released shortly after the terror debacle. Um, and you could also look to the detail of the consultation that doesn't quite um, answer some of the you know, big questions like, you know, where's the funding going to come from? in terms of the backstop for uh, an insolvency. So that will be when we respond to the consultation, we'll fire these questions out and I think more detail will come. So you could assume that this is UK government reacting quickly um, to a market event, um, but this was, you know, policy takes time um, to, 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 to be, you know, consulted with all the relevant stakeholders and then to, to go through parliamentary scrutiny, which it will do. But yeah, I think there's a bit of both in play here. This was already in train, but perhaps released slightly earlier for the reasons you mentioned with um, the market events of late. Um, but we hope that we'll get you know the right answer when we go through the consultation phase. Terrific, thank you, thank you so much, uh, James. Moving on, mo moving on a little bit. I, uh, one uh, sort of I think extraordinary uh, release coming out, uh, I believe in April. Um, and I'm going to, it was the plan to make UK a global crypto asset technology hub. And it took a lot of what we're talking about already, right? From a regulatory perspective, stable coins, I think a sand, sandboxes were mentioned earlier in this conversation. Um, 
it, it was an extraordinary short, but a really extraordinary document because it didn't say sort of we need to rein in this space. It didn't say we need to sort of ban the technology here. It, it, it said uh, the UK wants to be a global leader, a global hub for cryptocurrency, and these are the steps that we're going to take. Um, would you speak to that a little bit? I thought it was a real uh, one of those sort of watersheds. I think the in the US, it was the executive order. This was sort of the equivalent of that. It was a call for leadership in the space. Um, talk a little bit maybe about how you got there or, or sort of and, and how you ultimately see that and now maybe how we see it playing out. Sure. So I mean, that particular document um, is obviously a much broader team of people other than Sure, me. absolutely. So, um, yeah. it's, uh, it's a reaction. Yeah. Um, so I think the way we've approached this as with other fintech issues is that, you know, when a new technology with the potential to be really transformative comes along, um, you know, we don't want to be um, getting so focused on the risks that you end up obliterating the potential benefits. Um, the right way to think about it is that, you know, when anything novel comes along, then that can pose new risks because the, the uh, you know, the, the way in which you deal with risks in, for example, with money laundering hasn't really taken those into account or had to take them into account before. But the aim should be to try to foster the strong and safe growth of the sector so that we're, we're getting the benefits um, of the technology whilst making sure that people can still use it without, um, you know, finding that they're they're actually transacting with with dodgy people or that they're um, unwittingly uh, uh, unwittingly exposed to um, other kinds of risks. So um, if that sounds a bit like motherhood and apple pie, uh, well, um, I think, you know, it's the right way to start, you know, the right starting point is to say, you know, let's maximize the um, benefits and and really be as targeted and proportionate as possible when we're we're trying to get rid of the risks. I think the second thing, which um, you know, this is me saying it's not just mother and apple pie. It's. I think we've lost James for a second. I'm going to jump to Ian real quick, and then we'll get we'll get back to James. Uh, one one huge takeaway for for me from that uh, from the. Um, plan was this really leaning in on public-private partnership, discussion of sandboxes and reaching out to the private sector. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you viewed this plan when you saw it come out? I mean, a super exciting moment as I saw it, um, but and definitely sort of the fact that it was really a call to industry, a call to sort of, you know, think through some of these issues from government at, at high levels. And any thoughts on sort of the plan overall and where you see it headed? Yeah, well, as I said earlier in the last um year as as crypto uk has has become a you know competent voice um with over 130 members um yourselves included and, and many of the major players in the industry Larry, we can bring together a good cohort of subject matter experts to discuss um policy whether it be around stablecoin you know we have circle as members and circle engage regularly with policymakers when it comes to financial crime um, we have yourselves um, and other blockchain analytics firms to present to government to talk about the issues, whether it be around a travel, whether it be around ransomware. So it's it's good it's good for both public and private sector that we have the trade association that does this work of advocating and educating and supporting firm balance policy, and also it's good for the government, um, James and his colleagues, that they can reach out to. Um, industry using a trade body rather than just bilaterally talking to hundreds of different organizations it's it's much easier as a government official who's yeah, very busy you know doing good work um to engage with um industry trade associations because the trade association is there as a bridge effectively between uh, the private sector and the public sector so yeah i've been it's been really positive in the last uh, year or so here Fantastic. That's really helpful. One of my favorite parts of that plan that I wanted to ask uh, James about as well is the the Royal Mint minting an NFT. And I, I will admit that I have been continuously monitoring that and it has not happened yet. I even Googled last night to see if there was any way that we could break that news uh, on TRM Talks today. But uh, it seems to be a work in progress. And they said this summer. So it's this summer. Uh, so I, yep. I think that and, and, and when you when you ask about it, like, you know, it's a cool thing. But in all seriousness, I think it's a it's an attempt at a display of sort of really leaning in on becoming a crypto yeah. hub. 
Yeah, you can look at this from a million different angles. And when this was announced um, back in April by the government, but we Royal Mint was going to issue, issue an NFT, the community was, oh, that's just a, you know, just a PR stunt. Well, actually, it's not a bad PR stunt. So you could argue that, you know, with my KPMG hat on, KPMG buying Bitcoin and putting it on a balance sheet, it's not there as an investment. What it does is it shows the community that we, you know, are engaged in this and we're sort of learning and developing capability. So the UK government, by issuing its own NFT, it's not, you know, to raise funds. You know, they've got the government bond market for that. Um, it's to show that we're committed and we can also understand all of the elements involved in issuing a token, you know, whether it be regulatory, whether it be how you store it, whether it be um, legally how you report it and so on and so forth. And so that can be perceived to be a positive if you look at it from that lens. Uh, that, that, that's awesome. Um, let, let, let me finish here. You know, um, it, it's, it's crazy. I, I was in the UK a, a few weeks ago. Um, I feel like everything I'm running seeing, along the I, I'm, I'm running around, uh, everything I'm seeing, uh, right now is a story on something that UK regulators are doing in the crypto space today. I mean, it's really been extraordinary. I think I, I, I tried to post this yesterday, but I saw the top three stories on Coindesk's policy. Uh, page we're all involving uk regulations or uk activity i mean like and then we see what's happening obviously in the government today uh at ask you know opening up so many other sort of questions um but but having you on i, I want to take advantage of sort of what's next i mean what's top of mind for you you know like we, even in in mika which has dropped uh this week which is the the eu's uh sort of uh, uh framework uh th they do stay away from things like DeFi, like nfts for the most part i mean is that sort of what's coming next down the pike is regulators really trying to understand sort of emerging technology or I'll, I'll, I'll let you sort of, what are your members sort of most interested today when we think about like what's next kind of taking out the crystal ball? Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot there. So I try and be as succinct as possible, you know, touching on yeah. Mika as you talked about, we just had the, the trilogues wrap up and now we're at the technical drafting phase um, of the, you know, overarching piece of regulation that covers off many aspects, both uh, activity based and, and, um, market participant based regulation which which isn't perfect but it sets um a good um transparent um level of clarity for operating within europe so what we are you know one of our key positions um at crypto uk is we need a joint up approach and we need a holistic approach to regulating the sector and that's exactly what john glenn the minister for the city said in his april speech and you know, we expect we expected prior to the you know turmoil this week something to be mentioned at the mansion house piece on the 19th of um this month which was going to be by uh, the, the the outgoing chancellor mr rishi sunak so we'll still watch that and see if the new <coughs> chancellor uh, speaks to any of that but that's top of mind for um our members is you know we need clarity we need to make sure that we are you know competitive as an environment to um for crypto business to come and set up and we need to ensure that this policy and um, that you know new regulations that do come um aren't just using existing uh policies that perhaps don't work in a digital age and we've seen some of that friction with with, with current um particular aspects of of, of uh, certain activities such as uh, promoting crypto assets um so yeah in short um i think there's appetite in government these discussions we're having so top of mind for us is to make sure that yeah we get this joined up cohesive approach and ultimately it would be great if uk government could put together you know a stronger task force in crypto assets and have maybe as our crypto assets are somebody that's engaged to lead this charge and bring all of the different departments together terrific yeah no thank you so much uh james when you were gone ian told me that he's working diligently with the royal mint on the nft <laughs> project and uh he, he wants to make sure that he's on the nft in some some way or another <laughs> is on that. uh no i uh I, I did ask him when that's happening because I've been looking every day to see sort of where, where uh, but uh, but I hear I hear this summer. I'm I'm going to ask you sort of the last question and and um kind of kind of leave it there with you with you James and it's similar to what I just asked Ian and that is um you know look uh, as you're sort of wrapping up to some extent right travel rule and and where ultimately uh, things come down on that sort of what are the next things that are top of mind and I I just used um sort of Mika as a as a very recent example it's look there's a lot in there I mean it's probably the most comprehensive framework that we have globally for digital assets, but there's also a lot that's not. And it seems like, you know, things like DeFi and NFTs, and I can tell you from a US regulatory standpoint, it's very much the same, right? Tr the US Treasury is just starting to think about 
um, you know, what are illicit finance risks around NFTs and in the DeFi space? What what is sort of if if we took out the crystal ball uh, and crystal balls are short time frames in crypto, right? Uh, you know, we're t- six months, a year down the road. What are sort of things that are top of mind for you next? So, as we sort of move towards implementing um, the travel rule, uh, one of the things that's going on in parallel is uh, some of our international collaboration around the question of ransomware. Um, so we have been working through the G7 and with like-minded countries to try to really deal with this threat because, um, you know, it, when you're seeing instances like the Colonial Pipeline attack or, or other um, other attacks on, on critical national infrastructure, this is a real priority we need to deal with. And crypto um, has uh, an unfortunate role in that and that is often the method through which the ransoms are paid. So one of the big things that we're, we're working on at the moment is to try to um, both work with industry to, to mitigate this risk, but also to try to get as many countries as possible to adopt the um, uh, FATF standards for crypto assets so that there aren't um, any safe places for cyber criminals to hide. Um, because I think this is one of those areas which is, um, you know, it's, it's of increasing uh, concern to a lot of governments and, and it's definitely a priority for us. Um, I think also one thing I was going to say before my computer crashed, apologies for that, but um, what I was going to say then was um, our approach, you know, in terms of getting the best, the upsides whilst mitigating the downsides is very much premised on this idea that there isn't a trade-off between um, the sector growing and the sector being um, a safe and stable place to do business. They're very much two sides of the same coin. Uh, And whenever we look to uh, how to to approach questions of, of anti money laundering regulation? We're we're quite clear that um, a sector which is crypto sector that is perceived as being um, a safe, well regulated, and legitimate place to do business is one that is going to thrive. Um, I mean, obviously, we want to make sure that with the regulations are done in such a way that um, we're not stifling innovation. But we don't we don't see those two uh, goals as um, in competition. Um, and so, yeah, as we look to the future, that's, I think, what what's going to be forefront uh, of my mind. That's, uh, th- th- that's terrific. And and thank you so much for that. I, I think that, you know, and, and th- thank you, thank you both of you, you for joining TRM Talks. Um, you know, when you think about um, how you how the community, how the crypto industry wants to hear and understand about these issues, you want to hear from regulators, and you want to hear from real leaders in the space. And I'm really, really grateful that you were both able to come on today. So so thank you so much um, to uh, to to the audience. Um, check out the handouts tab. Uh, TRM has training certifications. Um, there's a great blog post this week on some of the differences that we heard from James on unhosted wallets in the UK and how the US was thinking about them about uh, a year or so ago. Um, subscribe to TRM Weekly Roundup. Um, it is a great resource every week uh, for crypto uh, news uh, on regulatory issues. And, um, and and join TRM Talks uh, going forward. And uh, really, thank you to the two of you and thank you so much to everyone for joining us and for working together to build a safer financial system. Have a great day, everybody.